Amen. Let's look to uh, Matthew 17. If you want to follow along in the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 978. We're looking at Matthew 17, beginning in verse 22. And before we read the text, I just wanted to kind of share with you an experience that I had. Um, as I've mentioned before, back in 2012, uh, I got the kind of opportunity of a lifetime, and that was to go to Israel and uh, tour with Mike Huckabee's group. Um, got to actually spend some time with, uh, with Governor Mike, and uh, more to the point, I got to spend a lot of time with his son, David, and he and I were kind of kindred spirits. Uh, um, in fact, uh, I was reminded just the other day about uh, Roxanne was telling me how much sweets we eat in America and most other countries don't. And it reminded me when we ordered dessert one time and they brought out this, flute, this fruit platter and me and David looked at each other and said, uh, hey, we ordered dessert. This looks like fruit to us. And, uh, <laughs> and it just didn't work. So, so we were very uh, kindred spirits. But, you know, uh, a lot of people, when they go to uh, Israel and they see the sights and, and they see where Jesus walked and where certain things happened, um, they get kind of overwhelmed with emotion. Uh, that didn't really happen for me. Um, I was maybe too busy taking pictures or uh, cracking jokes, I don't know. But, uh, but there is one time when we went into the old city, we went to the Western Wall, or what is sometimes called the Wailing Wall. And kind of find out I was wrong, I, I always thought that that was the last standing wall to the temple. It's actually not. It is the last remaining foundation to the temple. Uh, if you look on the top of it, there are actually Muslim sites that are there now, that contrary to popular belief, uh, Jews are allowed to go up there. Uh, tourists are allowed to go up there. But, but no Orthodox Jew would ever go up there. And the reason why is because they don't want to risk standing where the Holy of Holies used to stand. And so the tradition is that uh, you would write down prayers and, and you would go to the wall and you would, you would stuff the prayer into the wall, the little piece of paper. And, and if you ever see pictures, this is covered in these these little pieces of paper. I, I never actually did that. A lot of the people on the tour did. But, uh, but if there was one place in the entire tour where I became somewhat emotional, it was, it was when I realized that as I watched all of these uh, men and women, of course, they were separated because it's been declared as a synagogue, uh, but as I watched all these men and women with yarmulkes on and such that were that were praying next to the wall, it suddenly occurred to me that for the Orthodox Jew, that is as close to his God as he believes he can get. There's no, that's it, no closer. An old, burned, uh, smoke-damaged rock wall. And that's as close as they will get to communing with God. And that, that really hit me, that what a privilege it is to know Christ and to know that there is now no separation. There is now no separation between us and how we can approach our God, who is, who is the same God who was worshiped in that very temple and yet now has come 
and has redeemed us in his son, Jesus Christ, and has rendered the temple obsolete. And so thankful for that. So thankful. And, it, and if there was any one place in that entire tour that I got somewhat emotional, it was that. Just uh, the overwhelming thankfulness, but also the sadness of what I was seeing in front of me. And even many Christians participate, which that's fine if you want to participate. And it's, it's, it's okay. But, but it, just, it just hit me. It just hit me really hard. And that really kind of speaks to where we're going in our text this morning and understanding what Matthew is teaching us in this text and, and how we, our relationship to the temple. And, and even though we don't have a standing temple, I think sometimes many Christians take on what I call a temple mentality. And, and in more ways than what you might think. And so, so we're going to look at that this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 22. Excuse me, chapter 17, verse 22. I've been doing that all morning. Uh, chapter 17, verse 22. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? Is it from their sons or from strangers, from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for both myself and for you, says the word of the Lord. Helping us uh, kind of get back to the context of what uh, of what Matthew is doing here, that's gonna be very important for helping us to understand why Matthew includes the story. He's the only one that includes the story. And, and so um, it will help us to kind of see where he's going. You may remember in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53, you have that, that dividing phrase, when Jesus uh, ceased teaching these things, which is a major dividing point in Matthew. And, and then throughout this entire section, all the way through chapter 18, Matthew is teaching about the community of Christ, about what the church is, how the church functions, and what it is to be. And we have been learning so many things about the church. What kind of community is it? We saw last week that in chapter 16, it's a, a, a confessing community. And then we saw the realization of that community that we confess that Christ is indeed the very presence of God among them. And he is the very presence, God with us, which is a, a very uh, vital phrase that Matthew both begins and ends his gospel with. It's different from the Old Testament community. It operates differently than the Old Testament community does. And one of the things we see in this section is that Jesus is slowly but surely pulling the disciples away from the Jewish external structures of the day. So like, for example, in Matthew 13, those final verses is the last time we see Jesus ministering in a synagogue. We never see him in a synagogue again after that. 
We see that he declares foods to be clean. He, he says that true defilement comes not from what you put in your mouth, but actually what comes out of your mouth, and that true defilement comes from the heart. He is pulling his disciples away from these external structures are not what make you clean. These external structures are not what make you right with God, but only a proper confessing relationship with Christ in the context of his community that he is creating. And we're gonna see that once again. The purpose of all of these structures was in order that they could come and they could find their atonement for sin, their forgiveness of sin, but the one thing it never could do was make them righteous. In fact, the blood of sin of sheep and goats could never atone for sin. It could never truly cover sin. But what we are finding here this morning is that in Christ, we are truly free from all of these things that we use to try to ease our conscience. You see, what I, what I mean is when we take on a temple mentality, the whole purpose of the temple was, was to come so that the conscience of, of those worshipers could be cleansed by the sacrifices they gave. Beloved, there are lots of things that we do to try to ease our guilt, to ease our conscience. Lots of rules that we take on. Maybe there's things we do, escapism and stuff like that. We'll talk more about that. But what I want us to see in this text this morning is that we must depend upon Christ alone for the true freedom that we have in our lives. This text is all about being a free community. The church is a free community. Or maybe better yet, maybe it'd be better to say a freed community. We are freed by Christ. And we're gonna see that uh, in the way that we handle this text, beginning in verses 22 and 23. This freedom is accomplished by Christ's sacrificial work for us. It is accomplished by his sacrificial work for us. Let's, let's look at this text and see what it says. It says that as they are coming into Galilee, they are, they are leaving the most northern part of Israel. They've been out of town for a little while, and now they're coming back, and they are passing through Galilee just one more time as they are making their way, marching their way toward Jerusalem. Jesus is on his final march to Jerusalem in order to give his life for us. And as they are passing through, Jesus reminds them once again, he's already mentioned this a few times, but he reminds them once again that the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they are going to kill him. He's going to be raised on the third day. This is the third time in 30 verses that Jesus tells them this. He told them this, uh, Back in chapter 16, verses 21 and 23, he, he doesn't necessarily declare it as openly as he does here, but he does uh, refer to it. He does imply it. And just after they saw the transfiguration and they ask him about Elijah and he tells them that don't say anything until the son of man has been raised from the dead. And he, he says they didn't recognize Elijah, but they did to him whatever he pleased. And so in the same way, they're going to do the same thing to the Son of Man. So he does tell them again. And then once again, the third time, he does right here, very openly. But this time it's personal. 
This time is personal. They react a little differently this time. Matthew tells us, and I, I imagine he remembers this vividly because he was there. He says, and they were greatly distressed. There was something about this prediction that hit them hard, that caused them to understand, wait a minute, they're starting to understand the reality and the, and the depth and how bad this is really going to be. Because Christ says, and I'm going to translate this, might give you my translation, that the Son of Man is about to be handed over to the hands of men. Now, the ESV says that he's about to be delivered. Most of your translations are going to say that he's about to be betrayed or something like that. People argue whether Jesus is cryptically referring to Judas here. Is he referring to what Judas is going to do? That's possible. Or there could actually be something deeper here. In fact, uh, if you want to put your, your, your ribbon or your thumb in, in Matthew, we're going to be looking at a couple of verses here. But actually, if you go back to Isaiah 56, that, that wonderful text that is so obviously predicting the passion of Christ. And there's a couple of key passages there in verse 6. For instance, Isaiah 53, 6, where it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has handed him over the iniquity of us all. When the Greek translated that Hebrew, they used the word that is used here, that he was, that the Lord has handed him over, has handed over to him the iniquity of us all. It goes on again in verse 12. It uses it twice where it says, because he handed over his soul to death, his life to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and hands over for the transgressors. It's used twice there. And so the idea that we're asking here is, is Matthew, is he kind of cryptically referring to Judas, who's going to betray, or is, he, or is he alluding or at least echoing Isaiah chapter 53? My answer to that is, why do we have to choose? Because the fact of the matter is both are true. Both are true. Matthew may have been intentionally ambiguous here. So that we will see that, yes, Judas and those who betray Christ are going to hand him over. And yet, at the same time, it is not outside of God's sovereign plan. But that Christ is going to be handed over by his father and he's going to hand over his own soul. It's personal. We know the disciples understood this because in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching to the crowd says, and Jesus delivered up, watch this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So who gave Christ to be crucified? The Father, the Father. And yet who also is, who is responsible? Whom you crucified and killed by the hands of godless men. And so we don't have to choose between God's sovereignty and their culpability. Both are true, side by side. That is a mystery we don't understand. But here's the point, is that Jesus is not gonna be chased. He's not gonna be captured. He's not gonna be a prisoner of war, but Christ is going to be voluntarily handed over 
to suffer and die. That's the point. And that's why the disciples are reacting the way they are because they understand the magnitude of this. That Christ is not going to be a prisoner, but he is going to give himself. He is going to die voluntarily. Now, this is exactly what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says. Peter, as he is reflecting on Christ's death, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Watch this. The righteous for the unrighteous. I, I use this passage whenever I'm sharing the gospel with people. And, and one of the things I'll have them do, because by this time I've already explained what sin is. I've already explained how they're accountable for sin. And so I'll read this passage and I'll say, let me ask you a question. Who is the righteous one? And they'll say, well, it had to be Christ. And I say, well, who is the unrighteous? And if they're paying attention, they say, well, that's me. And Christ suffered once for sins. He is righteous. You are unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. You see, Christ does this in order that we may be brought to God so that we can come to God. Beloved, true freedom is only found in your complete faith and trust in Christ because only then do you have the freedom to come to God, approach God with a clean conscience. Only then do you have the ability to not have to go through the temple to reach God. Only then do you have the freedom to not have to go through a priest to talk to God or to reach God. Because now in Christ, he being your priest, you have direct access to God, something that the Old Testament economy never knew. But now that we have that freedom in Christ, beloved, what is true freedom? It's not the ability to do what you want. It's not the ability to do anything you want. It's the ability to do right by coming to God, by coming to Christ. You know, I get tickled at all these people who argue over free will and stuff like that. I don't want free will because you know what I do with my free will every time? I choose to sin every time. I don't want free will. I want God's grace to change me. That's what I want. You can take your free will, keep it. I don't want that. I want grace. I want Jesus to make me a new person. Isn't that what we all want? Amen. And so Galatians chapter three, verses 10 through 14, I won't read the text for lack of time. And I, I know we've got a taco bar coming, so I won't tempt you. Job says that thy word is more precious to me than my necessary food. We're gonna try that out this morning. I'm just kidding, we won't. But uh, he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That Christ accomplished our true freedom. Christ has given us freedom through his work for us. That's true freedom. You don't have freedom until you know Christ. You don't know freedom until you know Christ. And so our freedom is accomplished by his 
sacrificial work, but our freedom is established by his personal relationship. As we move on in verse 24, and says, when the disciples and them came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, hey, doesn't your, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? This is a kind of a strange addition, especially after what Jesus just said. Well, what's this all about? The, the Old Testament monetary gifts are, are a source of confusion. I know we all understand the tithe. That tithe is an old English word, and it, and it, and it means tenth. Uh, and we know it was 10%, and that is right. Uh, what you may not be aware of is that there were, depending on how you want to count them, there's three or four of them. And so every year, a Jew did not only pay just 10%. They actually paid closer to 25 to 35% of their income to the temple. And each one funded different things. And what this tax is, and, and there, were other, there were other things on top of that. There were also, there were also free will offerings. And there were also other offerings that they gave. And this is a particular offering, a half shekel that went to the building of the tabernacle. It, it, it goes back to Exodus chapter 30, verse 13. And um, there's a little debate whether or not this was meant to be an annual tax or whether it was supposed to be a one-off. But during Jesus's day, it was paid every year. In fact, uh, we have records where they literally went all over the world, and if you were a Jew, no matter where you lived, you, you were expected to pay this tax. They sent out tax collectors all over the world to do this. The temple did. So Jesus has been out of town for a little while, and now he comes back, and I guess Peter's just hanging out on the street or whatever, and the tax collector comes to him and, and says, hey, I don't think this is really a question here. I think this is really a collection uh, the gist of what he's saying is, uh, hey, I uh, haven't got your tax yet. Where is it? Isn't your teacher, your teacher is going to pay it, isn't he? IRS season, we know all about this, right? You're going to pay this, right? And Peter, just off the cuff, he says, yeah, of course he is. <laughs> what are you thinking, silly boy? He walks back to the house, and I don't know if Jesus overheard, or maybe he just supernaturally knew, but either way, he knew about this, and Peter walks in and says, uh, Jesus says, hey, Peter, come here. Got a question for you. Very straightforward question. Verse 25, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from strangers, is the literal interpretation. Very straightforward answer. If you're a son of the king, you don't have to pay taxes. Period. Wouldn't that be nice? Don't have to pay taxes. If you're a son of the king, the king collects taxes from citizens. He does not collect it from his own family. And so if you are a son of the king, then you are exempt from tax. Now, that's a pretty straightforward answer. And again, some people may ask, what in the world is Jesus doing here? Why is Matthew recording this? In fact, I know of one, uh, there was uh, actually a couple of different commentators who said that Matthew really just included this because he had to put it somewhere. There's really no connection here. But actually, if you pay attention, if you read this chapter carefully, 
you'll notice that there has been a sonship theme that has gone throughout the chapter. Have you noticed that? For instance, beginning in chapter 16, verse 28, he says, you, there are some here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming. Remember what they heard at the transfiguration whenever Peter wanted to build three tabernacles. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Then verse nine, he tells them, don't tell anyone the vision until the son of man has been raised from the dead. And he tells them again in verse 12, so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And they come down and there's a, they come down and there's a commotion and what's happening, a son comes, a, a father comes up and says, Lord, have mercy on who? My son. And then we already saw in verse 22, Jesus once again refers to himself as what? The son of man. When you see this kind of repetition, there's a theme that's happening. And so now Jesus asked Peter the simple question. And I believe it's all kind of working up to this, this identification. Do you collect taxes from strangers or do you collect it from a son? And the obvious answer that Peter can only give is from strangers. So Christ is the son of God. He is the son of man and he holds no allegiance to the temple at all. But there's even a bigger implication here because notice what he does here. He could have said, does the king exact taxes from his son? But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He says plural. Does he collect taxes from sons or does he collect taxes from strangers? You see, here's the thing. The implication is very, very simple here, is that Christ, who is the Son of God, when we place our faith in him, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And what that means is, is we have no allegiance to the temple either. We don't owe this tax. We don't have to pay this. That's the implication here, that we have been freed as such, there is no obligation. There is, and by implication, everything that the temple stands for, the law, the curse of the law, it is no longer applying to you if you are a son or daughter of God. You are no longer under the Old Testament economy. You are free by your relationship to Christ. You have freedom from the law and its curse. Galatians chapter three, verse 27. You might wanna put your ribbon in Galatians where Paul really unpacks the theology of this. But he says here, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ, he is referring to that great confession of Christ, that when you confessed Christ in your baptism, you put on Christ. And that means that you are now a child of God. And just as the sons are exempt from the taxes of kings, so also the sons are exempt from the taxes of the Lord's house. In this case, that's the argument. Now, this seems so distant to us. I mean, we don't go to temples. We don't, 
We don't sacrifice animals. Say, okay, Randy, this is great. But again, what was the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple was to atone for sin. It was to sacrifice animals so that your guilt, at least temporarily, would be taken away. We may not go to a literal temple. We may not offer literal sacrifices. But what are the some of the things that we do to alleviate our guilt? What are some of the things we do to try to ease our conscience? We know all about that, don't we? Of course we do. For some, it may be escaping into, I don't know, drugs, alcohol. It may be escaping into binging on Netflix or whatever it is you do. It may be, it may be escaping into hobbies or, or whatever. Maybe for you, it might be perfectionism, that you ease your conscience by, by trying to be perfectionistic in everything you do. And if you, if you mess up here, then you set up another little rule that you've got to follow. And now you try to follow that rule so that before long, your list of personal rules for your righteousness is, is longer and more complex than the IRS tax code. And I know parents I've known parents in the past that, that their, their, their home rules, their house rules are about that complex because we have to raise good kids. By the way, that's gonna backfire. That's gonna backfire. And so maybe it's self-punishment. Maybe, maybe you alleviate your guilt by harming yourself. The incidence of cutting among American teenagers has astronomically increased. Beloved, it is not your scars that save you. It is Christ's scars. It is his blood that was drawn that alleviates your guilt, not the blood you draw on yourself. And yet the incidence of cutting among teenagers has astronomically increased. Maybe it's self-harm. It is whatever it is. But beloved, we know all about trying to alleviate our own conscience, trying to ease our mind. Why? Because we have a temple mentality. And yet in Christ, we are free from the temple. And in Christ, you are free from all of those things. Any place you go to for freedom, any place you go to to try to ease your guilt, to try to ease your, your conscience, to try to build up your own righteousness, oh, beloved, it is going to betray you. And it will demand more and more and more of you. And I have seen people before talking about cutting. I've seen people before that have to put 100 cuts on their, on their arms or legs or wherever it is to finally feel the same kind of comfort they used to get when they would only do it once. Make no mistake, it's a drug. And that's exactly how addiction works. That's exactly how perfectionism works. You see, because these things don't stop, they betray you and they make you their slave. But when Christ, if you are free in Christ, then you are free indeed. Oh, beloved, rest in Christ. Don't try to find solace in these other things. Get rid of your temple mentality. 
and come to Christ and find true rest, true freedom in him. Because only in Christ is where you'll find it. Everything else will betray you. Why do you still condemn yourself when God no longer condemns you? Are you more righteous than God? Why would you trade slavery for freedom? Why do you listen to others condemn you when God no longer condemns you in Christ? Why would you listen to lesser voices? Beloved, what law can you construct that can do better for you than God's own law? All God's law can do for you is condemn, but Christ can set you free. You cannot do better than that. You'll never do better than that. And so Christ has established our freedom in his personal relationship. And then finally, our freedom is modeled in sacrificial trust. It takes a little turn here, but our freedom is modeled. We have the freedom, but how do we use it? How do we enjoy it? What do we do with it? Christ says in verse 27, however, to not to give offense to them, and he tells him to go fishing. Stefan, I bet you love this part. That's right. They say money don't come on trees, but sometimes it comes in fish's mouth, so that's pretty cool. He says, however, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. He didn't have to wait, Stefan. Just the very first one. I mean, hook goes down, fish comes up. Simple as that. When you open up its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. You know, Jesus specifically says, in order to not offend them. I, I find that interesting because in other places, Jesus did not mind offending the religious leaders. He really didn't. But in this case, an offense would have been unnecessary. And you see, and that's the difference. When we are offensive in our faith, is it because we are defending a necessary truth or is it because we are simply defending and trying to justify ourselves? That's the difference. And so Christ says, I, in order to not cause unnecessary offense, go to the lake, catch a fish, get some money. Kind of reminds me of those crane games that you play at arcades, you know? Stuff like that. I wish they were this easy. You know, in fact, some people will actually say that Jesus was wrong to do this. This was unethical because he did not earn the money. Number one, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? <laughs> Number two, I mean, I mean, think about the precision of, of Christ's commands here. He didn't tell Peter where to go. He didn't tell him how to fish. He, didn't he just said, hey, go to the lake, catch a fish, 
And I mean, think about the precision. He had to know exactly where Peter was going to go. He had to know exactly when that fish had apparently eaten a coin. And then he had to know exactly when that fish was going to come and exactly the moment when Peter's uh, hook was going to touch the water. And exactly that fish apparently was not full from the coin. So he was going to try to get that worm. And then he, uh, and then in that, in that precise moment, he catches the fish. Jesus had to know all that in order to tell Peter how to do this. This is like the best GPS ever. Some of you guys carry GPSs on your boat, right? Well, you know, eat your heart out. This is awesome. Yeah. I mean, think about it. What is Christ doing here? Is he cheating? No, he owns the fish. He owns the coin. He owns the sea. He owns the water, and by the way, he owns Peter too. And he owns you. And he owns me. He can do whatever he wants. He didn't have to pay the tax, but he chose to. Why? Because he modeled that freedom so as to not cause unnecessary offense to the authorities. You see, this is love. True freedom Again, it's not the ability to do whatever you want. It's the freedom to love people the way Christ does. It's the freedom to love people the way that Christ does. Sacrificial trust. You see, God struggled to see the point here. What's the point of catching the fish or the tax? It, it models for us that right use of freedom. Going back to Galatians chapter 5.13, Paul tells them, hey, listen, you are free in Christ. You are free, but do not use your freedom as an excuse to sin. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. That is true freedom. That is the exercise of how a free community of Christ operates and uses their freedom among each other. You know, one of the quickest ways to divide a nation, one of the quickest ways to divide a church, quickest ways to divide a city or even a, or even a family or a friendship for that matter is to start insisting on your rights. Demand that everybody else respects my rights even if I may not necessarily respect yours. Beloved, true community is formed in sacrificial love for one another. What good is your rights if you don't have anyone to love around you? You may be the rightiest person in the world, but you're lonely. What's the good of that? Instead, we use our freedom in a way that loves and serves others in love. And beloved, here's the, here's the catch. Here's the catch. Get this. Christ is modeling this sacrificial love, yes. But did you notice that he miraculously, you know, Judas was there. He's holding the purse. I imagine he probably could have gotten a coin out of the purse. But why does he do this? To show us that when we practice sacrificial love for one another, God will meet our needs. And that's why it's sacrificial trust. Our freedom is shown in the fact that we can 
trust God even to the point of sacrificially loving other people. That's the point. Not all of you may be rooting for the chiefs tonight, but I love you. I don't know where to go from that, but... (laughs) Christ models our use of freedom, sacrificial trust in him. And beloved, when I am truly trusting in Christ and he is meeting all of my needs, I am truly free to love you like Christ loves, selflessly. I'm free to love you and not need you or take you, take from you. I am free to walk by faith and not by sight. And so we've seen this morning, we depend on Christ for our true freedom. He accomplished it by a sacrificial work. He established it in his personal relationship and he modeled it in sacrificial trust. So beloved, what will you do this week? Will you increase in your dependence upon Christ? Will you grow in your dependence upon him? I would encourage you to Give up some right. Give up something that you've been insisting on. Maybe even admit that you don't have to be right in an argument. Whatever it is you need to do, our hope and our freedom comes from Christ. And if you don't know Christ this morning, the the very first thing you need to do is repent of your sin. Turn from them, turn from your self-rule, Turn from your selfishness and understand that Christ is God in human flesh. He he came to the earth, God the Son. He lived absolutely perfectly according to his Father's law. He died on the cross even though he was perfectly innocent. He was righteous. You were unrighteous. I am unrighteous but he gave his life, he died, he suffered once for all to bring us to God. And our response is simply to repent of our sins and place our hope and faith in him alone. Stop going to all of these other things to alleviate your guilt. Stop trusting in your self-justification. Stop trusting in your self-righteousness and place your total faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And the scripture says you will be saved. You say, how do I know this? Because Christ didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave three days later. And we have the testimony of that here. And so will you place your faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe some of you are here and you've you've gotten in the habit of depending on other things to ease your conscience, to alleviate your guilt, to try to make yourself righteous. Stop it. None of those things will work. Instead, renew your dependence upon Christ this morning and him alone. It's in him we find true freedom and we find true forgiveness. Father, we thank you for allowing us to have this time. Lord, we thank you for these principles. I know that my weakness is apparent in my coughing and all these things, but Father, I pray your glory will come across 
that in my weakness, your strength will be made perfect. And perhaps this morning you are, you are calling someone from their sin, calling someone from their self-reliance, or perhaps you're calling them for the first time, or perhaps you're correcting them through your word. Or whatever the need is, we pray that you would work among your people this morning and that your spirit will be apparent in our hearts. Let's stand together and let's sing this song together. And if you're here and you need counsel or you want someone to pray with you or perhaps you're here and you wanna know how you can know Christ for the first time, I encourage you to come and we won't embarrass you. Let's come on down and we'll arrange to talk after service. Um, so we can have that conversation. So let's sing together. I surrender all.